There was a little, uh, I, I spent a lot of time last week talking about things other than the Bible, although they were always leading up to the Bible. And so <clears throat> I'm going to ask those of you that were here, sort of a trick question. Is Christianity, is, is, is it's, uh, well, let's do it as a true false. Okay. Christianity is rocket science. False. Okay. Well, right. Now let's change it. Orthodox Christianity is rocket science. True. True. <laughs> You're banished. No, no, no. It's not rocket science. What is true patristic Christianity? What did we say last week? For those of you who were here, if you weren't here, you, you can't get it wrong. But because you don't answer, right? If you were here, what is it? Holy Scripture and Holy Tradition. That's a good answer. But the, but the deep knowing, very good. A gold star right there. Knowing God. Christianity is knowing God. It's a relationship. It's an experience of God. And, and, and that's very important to have as a backdrop because it has to do with, with person to person. It has to do with you and the Father. It has to, what do you pray? We just, what do we just pray? The Lord's Prayer. And how does it begin? Our Father. You're speaking to the Father of heaven and earth. You're speaking to the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And most of you, at some time or another, say the, the, the Jesus Prayer. And you're speaking to His Son. You're not speaking to his, the Holy Spirit. You're not speaking to the Father. You're speaking to the Son. When we, we started, the, uh, we started our, our services upstairs, we begin with, O Heavenly King, which is to the Holy Spirit. I, you're, what it means to be the, the purest form of being a human being to being alive is to know God, to be in connection and experience God person to person. Okay, but, but that's not so because... All your relationships, you have relationships with everybody in here. Almost everybody in here knows everybody else to some degree, to some degree, right? And all those relationships are different. Well, your relationship with the Father is not like Deacon Charles, it's not like Anna Mays, it's not like Judy's. It's different. They're all unique. So they're not cookie cutter. They're, they're unique relationships just like you're unique. And, and knowing God is what we are called to do and to surrender ourselves to him and to worship him, to love him, and to, and to let his love for, flow over us. And that, so it's important to have that backdrop when we start to talk about what the scriptures are because <clears throat> coming to know God involves following his revelations where he's spoken to others before us in their relationship with him. He's revealed himself to other people and we guard those revelations, whatever they may be, by the traditions of the church. And one of the uh, pillars of the tradition of the church is the Bible. Now, I, this isn't written down here, but I, I really like this. this is, it's leather bound. You can't put it on the altar, but it's leather bound. So you can lay it any place else. It's the scriptures. It's very pristine. It's, it's in neat order. Uh, we, everything's, you know, for an accountant, it has, you know, lots of numbers in here. This is good. And so you can go to, a, you know, like your sword drills when you were a Baptist, you know, you can go find a verse in a hurry. If you know the, you know, the, the, the books, you know about where they are, you know the chapter, you know the number, you can get there real quick. So, I mean, and... and it's easy to think that, okay, we'll have this beautiful book, and it's very sort of clinically pristine. But 
it didn't come like that. <laughs> it didn't happen. Just sort of, God sort of said, okay, Father, let's, you can use this now. And it, that's not the way it worked. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to start to talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, where they come from, how they come to be, and knowing that they are <clears throat> this written portion of our holy tradition of how we live in relationship to God. Okay, now, I, I beat that to death last week, so I'm not going to do any more with that. Now, I did give a handout. If you didn't get one, there's probably some extra ones back there. But it's just a little two-page handout. It says Old Testament, New Testament. And again, I'm not trying to instruct you by my, uh, my outlines. I'm just trying to give you sort of a sense of where we are uh, and, and what we're talking about as we go through. So we talk about uh, the, uh, we're going to start to talk about the Old Testament. Uh, and, and when we speak about the Bible, the word Bible itself really sort of is essentially um, a plural of the word for book or books. So the Bible is a, a group of books. It's not one book. Well, obviously it's bound as one book, but really there are a whole group of books that are put together. Uh, and we speak of the canon, this Old Testament canon, or canon can mean rule, or it can mean regulation, or it can mean, <clears throat> you know, those things that are, are in, in this group of approved things for us to use. The canon and the scriptures are those scriptures, I'll read it to you here, those books which are accepted as authoritative for use by the faithful. And most particularly, generally, what we're going to see later on, particularly when we talk about the New Testament, I, I may not mention it much, but you'll find it in, if you go read about commentators who about what should be in it or what shouldn't be in it, it has to do with what's read in the worship of the church, what's read by the church in its worship. It's not necessarily everything that's profitable. We have lots of profitable uh, writings. And we're going to see, particularly when we get to the New Testament, there, there, there's a whole set of writings called the Apostolic Fathers, which are excellent writings, but they're not in the canon. But we don't throw them away, say they're no good, but we also don't put them in the canon. We don't make them part of that approved part of uh, this, this tradition that faithfully transmits to us the life of God in his people, and his people in him. Okay? Um, most of us are aware that for the Old Testament, there are various canons. And, and so you know there's a, a Jewish canon. Or if you aren't familiar, I'm going to tell you there's a, there's a Jewish canon. We're going to talk about that in, in, in a few minutes in a little more specificity. And then there's uh, what we call the Septuagint or the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. But those aren't the only two. It's easy to think that they're just those two. Um, but there, there are others which take, for the most part, that things that are in either the Jew Jewish or the Septuagint or add to them lots of times. So Roman Catholics follow pretty close to what the Septuagint is, but they have some variation to it. Protestants follow almost exclusively, if not exclusively, the Jewish canon. But there's an Armenian canon. There's a Syriac canon. There's a Coptic canon, there's an Ethiopian canon, there's an Assyrian canon. 
And all of those actually have some other particular writings that may be added to what we primarily understand as the Septuagint. Most of those are going to have the longer canon. And that's what you'll hear lots of times. You'll hear the Old Testament referred to as the shorter canon or the longer canon. What they'll usually mean by that is the, the Jewish shorter canon. And, well, or they'll mean the Septuagint, the longer canon. All right? The Hebrew canon, so we're just going to focus on two, though. We're going to focus on the Hebrew canon or the Jewish canon and the Septuagint. So <clears throat> I think I've got... Yeah. So Hebrew canon is known as the Tanakh. All right. So that's just I'm just gave you the we're not going to spend a lot of time with the word. It's just an interesting word to know. And and those the writings that are in the Jewish canon generally fall into what we are three categories. And so those are known as the Torah. You've heard of the Torah or in Greek. We refer to it as the Pentateuch or it's the law. It's the. Do you know which ones those are? Which it's very specific books. Which those are? Anybody? The first five books. Okay, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Pentateuch five, right? Then there's the Nevim, which are the prophets, generally, or in the Jewish or the Hebrew canon. But it's a larger understanding than we typically have. When we think about the prophets, we only think specifically, usually, about those those books that are. Uh, go by the name of the prophecy uh, or, you know, uh, uh, Malachi or Zephaniah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And those are for us. And, and but we have a whole group of others that we include as what we call the historical books or the history books. In Jewish canon, they generally refer to those all as the prophecies or the prophets. OK. So we sort of break that, that, that Nevi'im down into two categories, and that's written on their history and wisdom. Excuse me. History and other, okay? But the Nevi'im, did I put that I put that, I may have put that wrong. Yeah, yeah, I wrote that wrong. So it says Nevi'im, it's the, it's the history and the prophets, not history and wisdom. I, so I wrote that wrong. You can scratch through that. The other writings would be the wisdom writings, which are, uh, Proverbs, uh, Psalms, and that whole group we call the, the wisdom, wisdom literature. So I just typed that wrong. So it's history and prophets are the novem for us in the parenthesis there. Okay. So <clears throat> now the writings for the Old Testament canon span a long period of time, a century, actually over a millennia. They're spread over millennia, uh, about 1,500 years, maybe even a little longer for that whole period of the writings for the Old Testament to be there, which is very different from the New Testament. The New Testament writings are probably done easily within 100 years or less. Everything in the New Testament is in a very compact form. It's a much shorter canon, you know that. Old Testament spans a longer period of time. So we first sort of, and last week, if you weren't here, we, we talked about the fact that uh, a community of believers, of those who are practicing the faith, um, weren't always dependent on writings. In fact, we, it's a long time before we ever have anything written, if you remember we talked about last time. We had like, what it was, 16 generations before the first thing. If you just look at the scriptures and, and, and the uh, genealogies from the Old Testament, you, you see that there are 
16 to 18 generations before the first thing, everything, anything's ever written down. And so it doesn't mean people couldn't practice their faith and love God and do what they were called to do. But Moses then traditionally writes those first things that are written and, and they're written so that there might be a written record for that which has been orally transmitted to us for over a long period of time. But we probably see references to things being pulled together as a canon as early as about 400 B.C. or some people would say what B.C.E. I guess is that the term? Uh, well, I like B.C. so we'll just say B.C. right? 400 B.C. We see in the second book of Maccabees a reference to Nehemiah, excuse me, Nehemiah collecting books uh, about 400 B.C. although that work was written later but about 400 or 500 BC, Nehemiah is collecting books, and they make reference, and, and, and the writer of, of Maccabees makes reference to that. A subsequent writing in, in Maccabees also makes reference to Judas Maccabeus gathering books together and, li- and lists some of those books. So we see in that four to f- or three to four to five hundred year period before Christ that the books books are in existence, and now somebody's sort of pulling them together in some sort of Order. All right. Some people say that the uh, Old Testament canon, the books that are included in it, was fixed as early as about 140, maybe as late as 40 BC, and and that would be in what's known as the Hasmonean dynasty. Some say that the Old Testament canon. Uh, well, and let me stick with this for just a second. 140 to, to 40 BC, so that's about a 100-year period. If if it's sort of fixed in that area, it probably I mean its its fixed nature would have been the the Septuagint. We'll talk about it in a second, but but the the Hebrew canon is shorter canon and doesn't have a lot of the books that the Septuagint has. But but its fixed nature sort of finds its, its beginning somewhere in that range there. Others would say very specifically that the shorter Jewish canon that we have now was fixed in about the year 70 AD. And that would have been at what is known as the Council of Jamnia. Now there's some argument about whether this actually took place the way uh, sometimes it's written about. Some people say that uh, there was no doubt in anybody's mind that there was a council, but it may have not been to specifically deal with what the books are in the canon, but it may have been something that was included in that in that time. Others say that it was, or actually the Roman Catholic Pontifical Biblical Commission says it was later than the formation of the New Testament, but I'm not exactly sure what that means. That could mean... For them, 150, it could have mean later than that. Uh, in any event, somewhere between 140 B.C. up until about 70, the Hebrew canon was fixed. But it, it, was, it didn't have this shorter character to it until a bit later. Although you're going to find there's going to be some argument about that between those who are who looked to the Septuagint as a much earlier writing and is in fact used by Jews for quite a bit of time. And it's a longer canon. And then it gets shortened. We're going to talk about why it gets shortened in a few minutes. 
the text that's used that you that the Hebrew canon has now, if you were to if you could read Hebrew and you went and got a copy of the Tanakh or the, the Hebrew Old Testament canon, the text would be what's known as the Masoretic text. Some of you who read about Bible things are familiar with that. Masoretic text was primarily copied, copied and edited and distributed by a group of Jews known as the Masoretes between the 7th and 10th century. So they're pulling together Jewish writings and, and, and as it were, putting them to paper in that 700 to 1,000 year area. And that's the text that's used right now. That doesn't mean it's a bad Jewish text. It just means it's, that's when that, the translation that you look at now, that's where that comes from. The oldest extant or, or existing uh, piece of this Mesoretic text is from the 9th century, about the year 900, which is interesting because the oldest piece of the Septuagint is hundreds of years older. We have the Septuagint going back to the Codex Sinaiticus in the, in the 5th century. We have other codexes that go back earlier. So we actually have fragments of the Septuagint that are older than the existing Jewish texts that exist today. Okay? That's just information for you. There's the Codex Vaticanicus, Alexandrinus, and Sinaiticus. All of those are 4th to 5th century. The books that were in that are in the current Tanakh or Jewish canon, number 24. Now, but you, most of you were good uh, uh, students when you were growing up. And somebody, uh, you always were told there are 39 books in the Old Testament. So where does this 24 come from? There are 39 books. If, if Protestants use the Jewish canon, and many of us are converts, and we learn that there were 39 books in the old, and I'm telling you, well, the Jewish canon only has 24 books. How can that be? There's a question. There's an answer there. Because he's the quiz at Sederek. That's the answer. No, no, they, they, they combined them. They, yeah, they combined them. They smushed them together. That's exactly right. So what happens is all of those minor prophets are considered one book. All of the 12 minor prophets are considered one book. First and Second Samuel are considered one book. First and Second Kings are considered one book. Ezra and Nehemiah are combined into one book. First and Second Chronicles are one book. When you do that, then what you end up with are 24 rather than 39. But those are the books, okay? Besides the Tanakh or the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament Bible for, for Jews, another authoritative piece of writing for them you're familiar with. You know what the name of that is? The Talmud. Okay? And Talmud actually, uh, now, I don't know enough, know, know enough about the Jewish faith to tell you, but it's, it's considered nearly equal to the canon, if not equal to that. The Talmud is about 6,000 pages, and it has actually two pieces, and it's the Mishnah and the Gemara, but they're actually 
in the year, the Mishnah is a, a, probably comes from about the year 200, the Gemara comes from about the year 500, and so, but those are very, uh, those are authoritative writings too, but we're not dealing with that, we're just dealing with the canon, uh, the, the Jewish canon as we understand it. So that's the Jewish canon, and I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to give you some, uh, a handout that sort of gives you all the books in each of these traditions, okay? So, any questions about the Jewish canon? Yes? What language was it written in? Well, so, it was in, it was in Hebrew, primarily. There are some pieces of it that were actually in Chaldee. Some of the, the Daniel passages are, in, are not in Hebrew, but, but most of it was in Hebrew. What happens is, it existed in Hebrew, and that's where we get to the Septuagint, okay? Because the Septuagint's in Greek. So you have almost all of these books, although here's where, this is where it gets messy. It gets messy pretty quick, all right? When were certain things written? And there are all kinds of arguments about certain books being written at this point or that point. You know, the classic thing is whether Moses really wrote the law, the Torah. Or lots of what we understand as the deuterocanonical books, which we'll speak about a little bit here. Uh, I mean, there's a lots of argumentation about whether they were written before the Septuagint was begun to be written or they were already existed. I, I can't answer all of those questions for you. I can give you some of the history for all of that. But this is why it's important to understand that the scriptures are a book of the church and not vice versa. The scriptures are authenticated by the people of God in relationship with God, living in community with God, living and worshiping him, and giving their, their imprimatur for what those scriptures are rather than the other way around. If it were the other way around, you know, people who get all tied up in knots about, you know, particular words, we're going to talk about that later too, particular words or, or phrases or verses, um, that's, that's what they're worshiping then. They're worshiping words and phrases and, worship, and verses rather than letting the church be, and let God, through his life in the church, teach us and the scriptures be part of that tradition as defined by the church. Not whether it was written in 150 B.C. or 450 B.C. I don't know if I'm making that, if that's helpful to you or not. I see a lot of blank stares. We'll come back to that. <laughs> So the Septuagint was the Greek translation of those Hebrew scriptures. And so the, and this is pretty, this is pretty, conf, I mean, uh, most people would agree with this first part of this, at least, I mean, whether you were Jewish or not, that the Septuagint has as its initiation the Greek king of Alexandria, who was Ptolemy II, somewhere in the third century B.C., the exact date, we don't know, but, there, but the story is that, that Ptolemy, who was a Greek king, wanted the, uh, uh, oh, one more thing before I tell you that. We sort of think about, okay, all the Jews are in Palestine. Well, that wasn't the case. 
there was a giant dispersion of Jews all through the Middle East, all through the Middle East and in the Mediterranean area. So in Alexandria, it's estimated that at least 10% or maybe even much more of the, uh, the population of Alexandria was Jewish. There was a large Jewish population there. There was a large Jewish population in, in other places along the Mediterranean. And so anyway, Ptolemy wants uh, the scriptures to be understood by everybody. And this is another fact is that after Alexander the Great's conquest, the whole of the Mediterranean or the, the, that whole Mediterranean world adopted Greek. Everybody spoke Greek. They spoke Greek in Rome. They spoke Greek everywhere. So if you, and there were many people, particularly even in, 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 uh, in Alexandria, Jews even, who would have been much more fluent in, in Greek than they may have even been in their own Hebrew language. So Ptolemy wanted those scriptures to be understood by everyone. So he, uh, he wants and asks the priest Eleazar to convene a group of translators to translate the, the Tanakh or the Torah. And there's where some argument also exists. There's some people who says that he, he had them translate all of the scriptures. Well, others would say, no, he just wanted the law. He just wanted the Torah to be translated or at least the Torah. And that's where those dates come in. Some people say, well, some of those things that we count as deuterocanonicals haven't been written yet. Others would say, well, yeah, they were. There, there's, we can't know for sure about all of that. Nevertheless, there's, there's great confidence upon the, the broadest spectrum of people that at a minimum, Ptolemy wanted and had all of the Torah translated. And, and the tradition is that Eleazar picked six translators from the 12 tribes, which is how many people? 72. Others say it was 70. Hence the, the name Septuagint, the 70, or the translation of the 70. And there are a lot of other sort of uh, traditions that go with it. There's one, this is an extreme tradition, which we kind of like, okay? We like some, but, I, but I, I think at least this part is, I don't think anybody has any doubt about any of the part that I've said to you at this point. At least the Torah, Ptolemy's initiation, the Torah is being translated, and there were somewhere probably 70 or 72 translators. One tradition is, you like, <laughs> is that he had 72 cells built and each one had to go into his cell and translate by himself without talking to anybody else. And when they came out, they all had done the same thing. Eh, I don't know. I like that story, but <laughs> I'm not. I, could it have happened? Sure, it could have happened. And, and, but whether it did or not, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to us. And, and we'll come back to that a little bit later, too. In any event, so the book of the translation of the 70, the, the, the Hebrew scriptures are translated by these 70 translators. And they, one of the sort of supporting documents there is, is a letter that was written by, I can never remember, oh, yeah, Aristeus to a fellow named Philocrates. And he uh, speaks about all of this. And, and there's, there's great support centuries later that this is exactly what took place. 
that this 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 translation was done. So it's supported by Philo of Alexandria, Josephus, uh, who who wrote. He was a Jewish. They weren't Christians. They were Jews, and they they very much agreed with all of that. Saint Augustine actually was a, a giant proponent of that, and we're going to see that as we get to the end of of, uh, of the New Testament portion here. The story is even found in uh, the Megillah of the Babylonian, Babylonian Talmud that this is exactly what happened. Yeah. So that's another tradition. A, a, an additional tradition in with all of that is that one of the 70 translators was Simeon, the God receiver. And, and in fact, that Simeon was one... Now, so this is where tradition or, or legend and sort of... It gets a little murky here. Um, nevertheless, one of those traditions is that Simeon... Uh, was translating that section about uh, she shall bear a son. And we're going to see later on that the Jews translate, I mean, the the Hebrew scriptures translate that as young woman. The Septuagint completely says virgin. And in fact, when Simeon, the tradition is when Simeon came to that part, he said, well, this is young woman, but a voice said to him, no, it's not young woman, it's virgin. And so he, he changes it and, and is given evidently an, an angel or something said to him, says, and you're going to see the fulfillment of this. So Simeon lives long enough to then be the one to receive Christ on the 40th day. And that's when he says those words, Lord, now let us out thy servant depart in peace for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. So the tradition is, so the tradition is that Simeon was aged. <laughs> he was somewhere between 250 and 300. Okay, yeah. And why did Ptolemy want this translated? Was he a Jew? He was Greek, so I don't know. I don't think he was a Jew. So why? I think he was a, he was a noble man. I think he wanted to see that happen. I mean, he had people there that he thought it was worth translating it to, to be translated. So... Ptolemy the first was one of Alexander's generals, I believe. Okay. He, he took that part, he took Egypt as part of his share of Alexander's Okay. Hmm. Um, so this translation of the Septuagint began in the third century sometime. We don't know when it was finished. Some people say that it actually was, it was, it was done over a period of time and not by just these 72 or 70 translators. That really all they did was the Torah and then subsequent writings or subsequent pieces of that were done up until about the year 130 B.C. We don't have, all of that is rather, um, it's hard to sort of confirm all of that. Septuagint ends up being a basis for a lot of the other translations, whether it's Slavonic, Old Latin, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, Coptic. Uh, all of those have uh, looked to the Septuagint in a large way, not just the Hebrew Scriptures, but the Septuagint as their, as their basis to, to, in which to translate into their own language. Um, so I mentioned this Council of Jamnia, which was in 70 A.D. Do you know what happened in 70 A.D.? Jerusalem. Jerusalem was leveled. And so one of the, 
it is said by some that the only thing that sort of held the Jewish people in Palestine together was the rabbinic tradition and that the council really sort of at that point sort of was really trying to hold its nation together of people who's had their their homeland destroyed in effect. Rome has leveled the place and so I think that the reality of a council existing is very probably without, I don't think many people doubt would, would take issue with that. Exactly what all they did, we may not exactly know. Nevertheless, uh, one of the things we find is that even though Jews have used the Septuagint for, for several hundred years, it begins to sort of be lessened. And so it says that the uh, rabbinic Judaism rejected the Septuagint. It was like, okay, we, we're... We need to get back to ground zero. We need to get back to Hebrew words. We need to, we've, we've, we've done this thing with the Greek language and, and we need to get something to pull ourselves together. And so they sort of set, a, they began to sort of reject the Septuagint. And, and there are actually sort of four reasons that are given. One, that it said that they found certain mistranslations from the Hebrew to the Greek. Well, may or maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but that's one of the reasons it's given. Um, there's some differences in the text between some of what we now know as the Masoretic text, which wasn't done until, but, but ostensibly the Masoretic text, which was even done in seven or eight or nine hundred, was taken from the Jewish text that comes from the turn of that millennia. Uh, and, and so there's some differences in some of the translations from the Septuagint in some sections, particularly in Daniel. Uh, a number, a third thing was that uh, the rabbis feared Christianity, and all the Christians. I mean, the Septuagint was the book of the church. In the New Testament, there are probably there. I haven't counted them, and if you go and add, look it up, you're going to find people have different numbers. But there's somewhere between 250 and 350 quotations in the New Testament from the Old Testament. About 98 or 99 percent of those quotations are taken from the Septuagint. They're not taken from the Hebrew. And so what what the people would have what the the apostles would have heard read even was probably was the Septuagint because that was the language that the people that the people used um, and this is the, the fourth one was this I find this kind of interesting one of the reasons they said was that Hebrew was the divine language where have you heard that before sometimes Greeks say that Greek is the divine language but for us, it makes no matter because whatever it is, it's a book of the church. And so for us, it's not so important about the specifics of the word. It's the message that's specific. It's the message that controls. It's what does it say to us? Look, there, there's no doubt in my mind that Moses was speaking some sort of Hebrew dialect but probably was much more ancient than the Masoretic text and probably didn't even look anything like it. Most of you took English literature and you know Middle English and what you speak now or Old English and what you speak, they don't look anything alike. Well, probably what Moses spoke was not exactly like that. And 
anybody who's done anything with languages, I'm not, y'all all know I am multilingual. That's not true. I am profoundly monolingual. But I do know this. There is never a complete one-to-one -one correspondence between any language and, other, and another language. So words, how many times have you heard somebody teach about the New Testament and they say, well, in Greek, this is what it says, and we don't have a good translation for this. Try to translate noose into English, or try to translate, I mean, we have all kinds of words like this. They have multiple meanings. We, we have love, but Greeks have multiple words for love, and they all mean something a little different. So you can't, there, another reason why it's a book of the church, it's not a book of the language, it's not a book of the specific even words, it's the message that's given to us in the context of the living church, which spans centuries, right? All the way back to the creation of men and angels. In any event, the uh, Hebrews, excuse me, find my place here. Jews tended to sort of, by the end of about the second century AD, the Jews had pretty much stopped using the Septuagint. Now, what we have that was translated then has some variations to it that, that come about. There are a couple of what we call recensions or modifications that we find done by three different people, Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodotian. And I'm not going to go into all of that, other than to say that a portion of all of that actually finds its way into particularly some of the translation of Daniel. And the church has accepted that. Okay? So, but for us, those Old Testament scriptures are... Uh, are from the Septuagint. Um, other people who, who look to... Uh, oh, I, I, I had a little thing here that said some text variations, and I've already mentioned the primary one that I think is really sort of instructive to us, and that's this one about young woman and virgin. And that's, a, that's a critical piece for us. I mean, we say that in our creed all the time. That's an integral aspect of our understanding uh, Christ coming to us and, and understanding humanity and understanding who Christ is, that, that she, he was born of a virgin. Um, Jerome actually started translating uh, into the Old Latin. He, he, he was going to revise the Old Latin. He started with the Septuagint, but in the end, he ended up pretty much going back to Hebrew to do that. So the Vulgate... It's pretty much a translation into Latin from the Hebrew. And Augustine blasted him for it. <laughs> Augustine was a, a giant supporter of, of uh, uh, the Septuagint. Um, if we, we're going to get to the... That's, that's enough for that. Okay, now... Do we have any good English translations? We really don't. We have one translation into English of the whole of the Septuagint. If you have an Orthodox study Bible, it is not a translation specifically from the Septuagint. It's ordered like the Septuagint. It has all the works of the Septuagint. But the way, if you go and read in the beginning, it's not all taken specifically from the, the Septuagint Greek. Some of it's 
comes from the, from the New King James Version, which was essentially comes from uh, the Hebrew. And it was modified where the translators felt like it needed to be modified to conform to the Septuagint language in places. So it's not really exactly from the Greek. The only thing we really have was translated in about the year 1850 by a, uh, an Englishman named Sir Lancelot Brenton. So if you want to go read something, there's Brenton's Septuagint, B-R-E-N-T-O-N, Brenton's Septuagint. And I have it here on this sheet, and it's got, and actually you can download his copy from that website that's right there. Um, okay, questions on that? Yes? So the reason the Orthodox Study Bible does not, the Old Testament does not come to such is because it doesn't exist except Brenton? It only exists in English from, from Brenton. Why they just chose not to just use his, I don't know, but I've been told I'm not a, I don't, that it's not necessarily a high, very high quality translation. So if they wanted something that was, they wanted something faithful, so the King James actually is a, is a really pretty good translation, but there are places where it differs from the Septuagint, and where it did, they sought to correct that. And the reason they did it was this. They, they had somebody give them the rights to the New King James Version without any cost. And it was a, it was a long, drawn-out project with not much funding, and they did the best they could do. So it's a quality work. You just need to understand. And I, I recommend it to you. I, you just have to understand it's not directly from the Septuagint Greek. That's just what I wanted to make sure you know. Uh, What's this? And you had somebody in the parish. Well, we did. We certainly did. Mickey participated in that. And there are a lot of people scattered over the country did. And, and almost all of that was gratis. They did free. And that was a big labor of love for people to do that. So, um, okay, now what I'm going to do is going to get. So, I'm going to give you out here um, a couple of handouts. Stephanie, you want to hand those out on this side, and you hand that on this side. So I'm going to give you the Old Testament books listed and compared, and you've got three columns here. You've got um, the Old Testament, Orthodox Old Testament, Roman Catholic Old Testament, and the Protestant Old Testament, which is essentially the Hebrew canon, okay? So we're just going to look at it together, and I want to say to you that you know, there's, there's a lot of good material in the Orthodox Study Bible, and that's where this comes from. I just printed it up for you. That's just right from that. And so, and the next one is right from there, too. So, I mean, there's lots of help in here. This is really a good book to help you. Um, so, but this is a nice sort of comparison to show you the differences between the canons. And so, if you start from the top and work your way down, you're going to see that everything looks like, oh, it's the same until you get down to this thing that says First Kingdoms. What is a First Kingdoms? Well, in, or in the Septuagint, there, it's not known as First Samuel and First Kings and Second Kings. It's known as First Kingdoms, Second Kingdoms, Third Kingdom, Fourth Kingdoms. Okay, that's just that's what, they're, what they're known at in the Septuagint. Roman Catholics, when they, they left, they stayed with, they just made them all kings. 
But in, the, in what you, most of you grew up with in the shorter canon, which is the old Protestant Old Testament over there, you're going to see it's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then you'll see First and Second Chronicles, which we use Chronicles too, but you'll see it has a longer, hard to pronounce name, Paralipimomenon. Say that real quick, three times. No, you don't have to do that. <clears throat> then you're going to see their variations in Ezra and Nehemiah. And then you begin to realize, wait a minute, these orders are not the same. The Septuagint ordering of the books is not the same. It's not just that we have some more books tacked on the end. They're just not even in the same order. In fact, Job comes after Psalms, but in the uh, um, Hebrew Bible, Job comes before Psalms. The last book in the Hebrew canon is Malachi. We all grew up knowing Malachi, but that in, the, in the Septuagint, the last book is Daniel. I think that's really appropriate because there, there's a lot of prophetic material in Daniel, so it's the last book there. That's, it's, what the, it's where the fathers put it. And you'll see that there's some, obviously, extra books there that we, we understand is what are called the deuterocanonical books. Most of you probably grew up hearing the word apocrypha, which is generally not sort of always a kind name for those books. But really, deuterocanonical means the other canonical books, okay? The other canonical books that we include in our Bible. In fact, lots of our hymnography comes from the, and, and even uh, readings come from there that we do during Holy Week particularly. So you can see those uh, variations that are there. We're not going to study it tonight. I just want you to have it. You can look at it. But again, if you have an Orthodox study Bible, they're in there. A couple of things to just note. Uh, we have 151 Psalms and not just 150. There's a 151st Psalm. Okay. All right. This second handout I'm going to give you, and I like this one because, again, I like numbers. So I went back and this is also from the Orthodox Study Bible, but what I went and did for you was I went and put the dates that these were written in all of these books. And they're the dates that they were written at least as they're purported from the Orthodox Study Bible. So all of that material's in there, but it's not in one place except on my handwritten little sheet here. But I think you, will enjoy, you should enjoy that and sort of see when all of these things were. And again, we're not going to spend lots of time on it. It's just reference for you, I think. So... Just to kind of quickly glance over this, um, we don't really have good dates for the Torah. But so what you see written there is Genesis was written during the 40 years in the wilderness along with Exodus uh, and, and, and Leviticus. Or, or Leviticus was probably written about the time they were around Mount Sinai. Numbers is after the Exodus takes place. But, uh, but again, we don't really know those dates. And so you can see that there's the range of the dates is, is easily from like 1500 to as late as, um, what's, the, what's the youngest one there? 
first and second and third Maccabees only in around the year 100 BC. So that's a long time for all of these books to come together. And how did they come together? Not because somebody wrote them down. One, we didn't have a council that did it. It come together as a consequence of the people of God living out their faith and over time seeing that this is what we need to embrace. That's really how it comes. In fact, for the, both the old Jewish and the Septuagint, Jewish canon and the Septuagint, there's really no official statement about what they are. They're accepted by their use in the church or by the use by Hebrews. Now, the New Testament's a little different, but the Old Testament is really, there's no authoritative sort of statement. These are the books. They come to us as a consequence of the life of a community or a large community or the church in itself. And it's 751, so I had hoped to get through all of this, but we're going to have to wait to go on. Uh, into the New Testament next week. And next week what we'll start to talk about is how do we understand what the scriptures, how do we, how do we interpret them? There's, a, there's so much more to talk about and I, I don't think I really do any of it justice for you, but uh, that's what we'll try to talk about next week.